A uh, mate of mine, we always have this discussion, he's an exercise physiologist. He's like, Tate, you said technique doesn't matter, yet with clients, you, you change their technique. I said, well, yeah, it's not like I can change other parts of their life. I might as well give them something that doesn't feel like dog shit. And he's like, but you said it doesn't matter. I'm like, it doesn't. Like, it's not the cause of pain, but we can influence it to make them feel better. Welcome back to Cirque Sci. In this episode, we dive into pain science, whether all tissue damage is bad or if it is actually adaptive, why technique matters, but maybe not how you think, and some common misconceptions in the movement training world. Let's let's do this thing. Let's start. And and my understanding of kind of your background, Tate, is you got a bachelor's in exercise science, focused in rehab, and then you got your master's of exercise physiology with a focus in rehab as well, and now are an accredited exercise physiologist. For folks in the states, especially. Will you explain what an exercise physiologist is? Because we don't really have something that exactly falls under the same umbrella. Uh, so I guess the closest, uh, from what I've heard from from those in the US and, and Canada as well, is we'd sort of fit into like a, a kinesiologist, maybe? So I'd say, look, an exercise physiologist is like any other allied health. It's like a chiropractor or a physiotherapist. However, we don't use manual therapy. We can if we really want to but we're not trained in it. We're not professionally university trained in manual therapy. Uh, we only use exercise and we use that to help manage any, I'm gonna use a very broad term here, acute or chronic illness. So we don't necessarily specialize in areas, but we can if we choose. Um, so, you know, we might be helping people with cancer, manage negative symptoms associated with taking, you know, chemotherapy and stuff like that with exercise, you know what I mean? It provides, you know, empowerment, independence. They, they There's a bit more positive uh, outcomes as well uh, but also we might help someone who is currently experiencing some lower back pain so it's kind of a, a very broad sort of thing um, and I myself have sort of specialized in uh, in pain or musculoskeletal pain I should say cool I think that's at least my understanding of what it is as well and I, I think kinesiology is about as close as you get here or or just a physical therapist who decides they don't want to do manual therapy which i think at least there are some folks who are realizing that manual therapy is great in the short term maybe isn't going to do a whole lot in the long term and i mean if you're interested in having people come back to you and see you multiple times and make that money then like sure it's great but if you're trying to get them to fly free and be pain free eh, there's debate there i mean i mean definitely so i mean if we if we if you really want to if you if we want to be a real stickler in it we know that there's no difference between having manual therapy and exercise and just exercise. The recoveries are exactly the same. So is the manual therapy even necessary? Probably not. But the, the point is, is, is if that's what you think is going to help them, that's cool, right? I, I think where we... And as an exercise physiologist in Australia, it's actually really hard to get a lot of work. We're not well known. Uh, we don't have the same... It's almost like there's this bullshit hierarchical system where you've got physiotherapists and then chiropractors and then EPs right at the bottom. We sort of we sort of get talked down to because we don't do manual therapy. And it's like, well, 
If anything, I actually need less tools than you, so I'm actually at the top. I actually, I need less than you to get the exact same effect. I just don't, I just, I've, I've given up on that. I'm, I'm just like, whatever, let's all be on the same level. Let's stop the, this constant arguing of who's better or who knows. But, you know, exercise, uh, and manual therapy or just exercise, same outcome and recovery. Um, the amount of visits you have don't really matter at all. So we know that there's no difference in outcome whether you do two visits or one visit or seven visits or one visit. It just, it doesn't matter that much. Um, it's all about how we provide self-efficacy and independence within that session. So mm-hmm. uh, as EPs, we tend to sometimes go on to doing, I get it's sort of like strength and conditioning, personal training stuff as well, long-term. Some people say, I like the way that you helped me and I want to continue to grow and learn more. And sometimes we take that work on. And I, I'd say I have a few long-term clients that just come and train now. We just do strength and conditioning, uh, a couple of really like powerlifting style training, stuff like that. So uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But obviously, the have I made them dependent on me for pain management? No, they just like training. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think it's similar to how uh, most circus coaches in my, in my mind should be thinking and functioning is, all right, I'm going to give you the tools that you need and want to reach the goals that you want. And if you want kind of that long-term supervision, I'm happy to do it, but it shouldn't feel like you need me to reach those goals that you can still do it by yourself. Um, I think sometimes, you know, people benefit from the camaraderie and just having someone who's there keeping them a little accountable, especially when there's so much else that you have to kind of use your internal motivation and willpower for. Yeah, as you saw, like talking about community and stuff, I work in a powerlifting style gym. The community is awesome there. It's, um, it's very cool. People who don't really, don't work with me, but see my clients come in, support them. And it's our job as as allied health, as coaches, as, as whatever you might be helping someone, it's to make them realize and show them that they can believe in themselves to achieve their goals. If you don't do that at all, you've kind of missed the point of, of your position. And I think that's where it's like, if they want to see you more, that's fine. If they choose to want to see you more, that's okay. But so long as the goal was in the very first place and you're getting there of them believing in themselves, then you're doing you know, we might go ethically or the moral thing to do as a coach or allied health. I think that's uh, it's always something important to, to talk about. All right. So now that we've talked about how what you do doesn't super matter, but it, just that you're doing something and teaching them to be self-efficacious. If you were working with someone and prescribing an exercise, uh, are there exercises, maybe one or two exercises that you love to prescribe in general across the board? So I, when you posed this question to me, man, was I torn up. I was like, I was like reflecting, do I have favorites? And I'm like, are there ones I prescribe more over others? And I think this is going to be a kind of complicated answer. And I, I, I apologize. It's a bit, uh, I'll start it off as I like to keep things simple because if you don't, the person in front of you doesn't doesn't understand. And if you can't explain something simple, then you probably don't know it. That's what Einstein said. So I'm going to listen to him. He's probably smarter than me. I'm going to throw that down the gauntlet too. So when I when I'm when I'm getting in and I'm like, oh yeah, keep it simple, keep it simple, stupid. The kiss method, you know, the kiss idea, you know, keep it simple, stupid. You either you either pull pull them away or you push them into the pain. Right, and that kind of depends on the person. So if someone's quite fearful, scared, uh, they've tried resting, you might need to teach them to push into it, to actually experience it and go through it. 
Or you might have someone like myself. He's like, yeah, I'm sore. Just do more. Oh, it's getting worse. Keep going more. And you're like, well, you just need to pull away a little bit here, man. You need to, it's sort of, you know, you got two extremes of the scale there. You kind of got to read the person in front of you. So mm-hmm. to, I might give an example. I quite like, I call it the, an eight point plank. Okay. It's like a knees and elbow plank. Uh, this is for lower back pain in particular. And someone goes, oh man, you know, my back's really sore. And this is where narratives matter as well. This, uh, I told you, this is going to be complicated. But this is where narratives matter. Oh man, I've got lower back pain and it's in extension. And they're like, I don't like going there. And their, their sport requires them to flex, particularly for powerlifters. Low bar and deadlifting, they need to flex. Lumbar flexion is really important and it's strong. So I, I might teach them an eight-point plank and get them to flex there. And it and they they it's a new it's a new strategy to load in that feels okay and then they say remember that feeling go for that flex actively in that position and they do it like oh man I feel stronger and there's no pain I'm like cool conversely someone might be flexion or uh, you know extension intolerant they're like oh it's kind of sore but they've been pulling away from it I'll just make them extend more mm-hmm. it kind of it just depends. I would. I definitely have a few that I kind of go to, but I think I'd say I tend to. I'd shift it towards more of a. Where do I choose to push someone into an exercise or pull them away? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the the narrative that this person has internally is the deciding factor of whether to push them towards it or pull them away. I would ask, oh well, how do you know which to do? And I think the answer is practice and time and experience there's not like a oh well uh, if this person exhibits these three character traits then you should pull them away and if it, they exhibit these three other character traits you should push them towards it uh there's a bit of that there's a 50 50 chance of getting it right i mean the odds are odds are pretty much a, a pretty fucking good uh something i like to teach a lot of a lot of people that come to me for mentoring i say be okay with just playing and I don't mean as in, oh, you know, some people like to use play, play, like they would with kids chucking a ball around to teach you movement. I'm like, no, uh, that doesn't work for me as an individual. I'm like, let's fucking, let's pump this up. Like, oh, you're doing a max deadlift today or something. I'm like, not really, but I get really excited. So uh, I'm kind of like, let's get straight to the point. Uh, and I sometimes you have to play with different movement strategies and understand what this person's perspective is and what they're fearful of to make the first decision. So it's a good educated guess of where to start, but the rest of it is just exploring. Mm -hmm. And you don't know the outcome. You're just guessing. It's educated guess after educated guess. And you get closer and closer to, you know, finding out what feels good for the person each time you play. So if you get it wrong, well, you know that pushing into it was a bad idea. Let's, Let's pull away maybe. Fantastic, I'm now on the right pathway cool i'm a bit closer and, and you just keep going from there i kind of think that's the kind of doesn't sound very very scientific but it's certainly something that i think treating people a human that is complex and complicated and you've got all these things going through their mind man it's a lot of guesswork because they're not going to tell you everything and even if they believe something it might not be how they feel about it like it's it's just a bit yeah that's kind of like the, the best way I can put it. Be okay with playing. Be okay with playing with different ideas. And if you get it wrong, it's okay. They're not going to run away. It's okay to get it wrong from time to time. We're all human. 
yeah, I can make it a little more scientific for you if you want. Uh, if we just replace the word play with testing, you're just testing different things and you're going to get a data point each time you run a test and the test might succeed or it might fail. But either way, you're learning your client, patient, student is learning, and hopefully along the way, you learn together with that person what works for them. Uh, yeah, let's go with that. You make that sound way better. It's like my co-host. I say some shit and I ramble, and then she's like, let me just let me just break down what Tate just said. And she'll say it so eloquently. Thank you for making my words sound better. <laughs> We're gonna do one more kind of top five question here, and and I'm, ex- I'm really excited for the answer of this one. I mean, all of them I'm excited for, but what are your top five or top three pet peeves in like the movement training world. And you're like, why, why are people doing this? Why is this a myth that is still being propelled through social media and through pop culture? So I'd say I'm trying to be less, a less of an angry human. I've been trying this really hard lately. It gets very exhausting to be angry at my industry. In fact, I'm really disappointed in it. Hmm. I remember going into it when I was young and be like, this is the best thing ever. I'm going to help all these people. We're going to fix shit. I get into it more. I'm like, oh, well, I'm not actually fixing things. And when I discuss it with people, they get really upset. And I'm like, you're helping someone. You're just not fixing anything. You're just providing them the opportunity to grow. Like that's still helping, just not the way you thought. No, no, no. I'm fixing. Mm-hmm. All right, mate. Whatever. And people get so up and about it. It's 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 almost like <laughs> talking about what we were talking about before. It's like Republican versus Democrat. It is like that, but in the allied health world versus a BPS model or a or a or a kinesophobic model or biomedical model. It's literally like that. It's it's crazy. It's, people are trying to kill each other over it. But uh, my top one peeve, I'd say, is cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. Now, it's like you know better, but you don't do it. So the best example I can come up with is someone who says, oh, I'm really up to date with pain science and the biopsychosocial model and I know all this stuff. But then when they're working with clients, they're providing kinesophobic narratives which is like no cbic alcohol you know don't valgus don't flex your spine it's bad for you you're going to get hurt your posture is bad for you don't do it i'd say that's my biggest pet peeve mm-hmm. someone who tries to put themselves in all these camps tries to oh, i'm everybody look how good i am like look how evidence informed i am but then i'm not when i'm really actually working because i don't know how to do it or i don't really believe in it um i'd say that's probably my biggest pet peeve uh and it, and, it, and it happens a bit. Uh, that's fine if you don't fully understand it. Just say you don't understand. It's okay. There's nothing wrong, man. It's why we help each other. We're here to... So I'd say that's number one pet peeve. All right. Just just for folks who may not be aware of kind of the BPS model and the kinesophobic model or the mechanistic like biomechanic model, you want to give a quick overlay of that? Okay. So I did a really good interview with Greg Lehman uh, a few weeks ago, and he described this really well. He did such a good job of this. I, I really love him. Go check his stuff out. He's, he's a cool guy. He is. Um, uh, so we might go kinesophobic is like, best way to describe it is having movement restrictions. Uh, kinesophobic, being fearful of certain movements, whether that be, you know, for whatever it might be. And it explains to why you are in pain. Uh, oh, your knee moved funny. And so that's why you're in pain. And it just... The reality is, is the evidence says it doesn't work like that at all. Uh, and so that we would say it's a kinesophobic or a biomedical or a bio, biomechanical model. It's it's because of this. You know, this is the only way it is. And even that comes down to stuff like, oh, man, we've got some degeneration you need. That's why you're sore. It doesn't really work like that. It's, it's more complicated. Um, 
then we might go to the, the BPS model or the movement optimus model or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's more like, hey man, although you might be in pain right now and that movement might hurt, it's not damaging you and it's okay. But let's find another way that doesn't feel painful or let's make a way for that not to be painful or understand that maybe there's some psychosocial issues that are happening at the moment that are influencing how you feel. Like, hey man, I lost my job and I don't know if I can even pay my bills next week. Yeah, I can understand that feeling and the amount of stress that comes along with that. And unfortunately that plays into how we experience pain. Uh, less sleep, poor nutrition, all these kind of things, all that stuff. It just, it, it all encompasses into one big thing. Uh, yeah. People tend to dichotomize, oh, is it dichotomize them? Yes. Yeah, it's a binary. Yeah, like, tri- yeah. What's the third? Is it, is it a trichotomy? It's, it's, a, it's a trichotomy, yeah. So you, you've got the bio, biopsychosocial model being biomedical, uh, sociological and psychological factors, and people try to separate the three of them. They're not, they actually just layer on top of one another. That's kind of like the best way to think about it. When you, when you trichotomize them, it, it doesn't work. You, you, will, you might still help someone. And, and this is the point, right? We're still helping people. They, oh, their pain got away because they're no longer flexing their spine anymore. You know, and, and they're stable and they're neutral spine now. Like their posture's better. That's why they're... What if, what if you just provided them a different movement option that wasn't painful and that's what helped? Or what if you force them to rest by giving them a bunch of shitty little exercises and taking away from their meaningful activity? What if you provided an exercise-induced hypoalgesic effect that reduced their pain experience and then let them keep going? That is, that's science. That's evidence. We know that's happening. No, 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 no. Their model would be, no, technique matters. The biomechanics is better and more efficient. Thus, it's no longer sore. What the fuck? It doesn't work like that. Yeah. Hopefully I explained that really well, didn't ramble too much. I, I think it made sense. Uh, and and I'll be sure to provide some links in the show notes just for people to dig deeper. Not No, I really do think that was articulate, but I think that a lot of circus folk who will be listening are so used to hearing things from the biomedical model that the idea of uh, the biopsychosocial model or other models that are kind of blending or, or taking new ideas from that that are just not the biomedical model um, might want to look into them a little bit further just because uh, there's so much emphasis and I think in a lot of movement spheres but especially in circus and aerial on technique that if you do the wrong technique you're going to get hurt you're going to get an overuse and injury injury in the long term you're going to grind away at a joint so that you're you know 45 and you can't bring your arms overhead etc etc so you have to be perfectly symmetrical and you have to execute everything with perfect technique otherwise you'll die that's hyperbole but sometimes it's not sometimes that's not hyperbole sometimes that's the message that we get from allied health Mm -hmm. it's fucked and that it, it kills me every time yeah yeah okay so that was pet peeve number one. What's number two? Number two. Oh, number two. Let's have a look. I made a little note on this. What was number two? Nice. Number two was... Okay, another pet peeve. It was... Uh, we talked... To, I was sort of thinking about having discussions like this. I actually like discussing with people that have a different idea. But what I don't like is when they're not ready for it and they still say they want to discuss. So it's like someone says, oh, yeah, no, I disagree with that. And you're like, oh, do you want, we can discuss this idea. But all they do is shout at you and they don't allow you to talk. 
and they they have these unrealistic expectations of you. Give me evidence. Give me evidence. Give me give me give me some studies right now. And I'm like, what? I mean, I can't. I mean, I, mate, I can't remember my girlfriend's birthday, and you you expect me to remember a study, like off the top of my head, the name of it and the day? No, that's unrealistic. Can you give me a study of your beliefs? I have one in my back pocket right now. I'm like. So you carry that around with you on a regular basis? Like, there's, right, there's something wrong here. My backpack is always full of scientific journals at all times. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want from me, mate? So, and I'm not an academic either. Like, I, academia is not my strong suit. I, I find that to be a massive pet peeve. Uh, that Big time. Uh, setting unrealistic expectations that you wouldn't set on yourself because you don't want to be proven wrong. Mm-hmm. I like being proven wrong because I get to learn. Please prove me wrong. I want to learn. I want to be better. I'm okay with that. And, and if you can provide the overwhelming evidence for me to change, I will tomorrow. And I'm okay with that. I just, I don't see why you want to fight it. It's people identify with their opinions and these are opinions, right? The, the, the to suggest posture is compl- is really important. And there's this perfect posture and we know that the overwhelming evidence says otherwise. And there is actually no good, credible study that says, yeah, posture matters. Mm-hmm. That's just your opinion then. And if you're holding on to that and identifying with that, you got a problem. Like, <laughs> like in terms of, like, you're not going to be able to grow. You're, uh, you're not a bad person if you believe in something different. I can still like you as a person, even if you believe something different. That's okay. I'm not going to judge you as a person because you're still trying to help. That's probably the best way I can... Go about that one. Yes. People just shouting at you. <laughs> All right, y'all. We're going to pause for a brief sellout moment. In case you didn't know, Cirque Sci was started as a small accident with the aim to provide quality information on the science of circus and aerial training, as well as coaching and rehab. There are about 10 upcoming interviews and episodes, but these interviews don't edit themselves. So if you're enjoying the podcast, consider supporting it by going to patreon.com slash At the first level, you're showing your support for the show. You can submit questions directly to the interviewees, and you'll get access to exclusive video skill tutorials. If you want to support the show, but aren't able to do so financially, consider rating, reviewing, and sharing it. It really makes a big difference. And now back to Tate's pet peeves. <laughs> My third one is definitely stupidly long warm-ups. Uh, I... Can you quantify and qualify what that means? So uh, the best way to warm up for an exercise is to do the exercise itself. If it's a complicated skill-based movement, you might break it down into sections, build it up, and then slowly build each section in together, and then you you do the full movement, and then you might then load that full movement. That might take you five minutes, at the very most. But, but what if I need to do, like, 13 mobility drills and foam roll? What? Why, why shouldn't I do that? <sighs> this is the complicated part, right? I've had athletes come to me saying, oh, man, I'm, I'm doing my mobility for 45 minutes. I'm like, you know the thing that you did... 45 minutes ago is no longer the same because that foam rolling and that mobility drill has its effect is lost it only lasts a couple minutes at very most there's not a huge amount there's no physiological change there is zero because if it was that easy to to change physiology you would if you walked into a wall or fell off the 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 silks or the rope and fell on the ground you'd fucking die Dude, i'd be so right fucked. i'd be so fucked. yeah you <laughs> Man, I, putting a 200 kilo bar on my back would snap my spine if it was so easy to manipulate tissue. I would just, I'd dead, right? People would just not exist if it was that easy. 
So we're changing neurology when we do that stuff. And that's where I'm like, break the movement down. Where do you feel stuck? Spend some more time there, work through that, build the skill. You're actually doing more specific training and that's gonna help you on the long term than this non-specific crap rolling around the floor like a fucking dog. Like that's what I don't get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this, I have no doubt this happens in every sport. I've seen it in CrossFit, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, uh, strongman, and I have these athletes that come to me. I've seen it in gymnastics as well, and I'm like, "Oh man, how long does your warm take?" Oh, about forty five minutes to an hour. I'm like, "Why?" Oh, be told by this person I need to get better overhead or whatever it might be. I'm like, "Okay, do you feel like that's a problem now?" Yeah, okay. Well, why don't we grab that bar and put it over your head? I'll oh, see so you get your bar over the head. Yeah, but it's about like a couple millimeters off where I want it to be. I'm like, okay put it behind your head and press it off off there. Oh, yeah, cool. Now I'm in position. I don't do anything fancy. Mm-hmm. You just find things that are so similar to the movement. I didn't do any mobility. I didn't do foam roll. I didn't do stretching. I didn't do some activation drills. It's none of that. Just give them something. And a lot of the time, particularly with athletic populations, the more load you give them, the better they perform. Mm-hmm. So give them more. Like, give them the movement. Uh, and so... If we, if we start shifting towards, hey, man, the best way to get better at this skill is not by fucking around for 45 minutes. It's about actually getting in there and getting on that bar and mucking around and doing things and feeling like, okay, I'm feeling feeling sensitive here or weak here. Okay, cool. I might spend a bit more time. I might do instead of three reps, I might do 10 reps. Oh, yeah, that's feeling way better now. That's, that's it's moving really smoothly. Um, and conversely, I mean, this is the other part, right? I might extend someone's warm-up by, by a minute or two, and it might be because they have pain, and I'm like, I want you to do this silly exercise. Because for whatever reason, whether it be an exercise-induced hypoalgesic effect, which is just changing how shit feels so it's not sore, whether it be providing them a new movement option that feels better, or just convincing them that they're not hurting themselves for two minutes, fantastic. But if they're there for more than two minutes, I'm like, get up and start lifting. Like, I, I don't want to see any more of that. And they're like, oh, but it feels good. I'm like, I don't care. You've done it. You've proven to me that it feels good and you feel cool. Go. The more you do it, you kind of, there's almost like a loss of effect. It's like this dependence. And as soon as clients feel better, as soon as pain has subsided, I'm like, get rid of it. Get the, get it out of your warm up. I don't want to see you do it again. Mm-hmm. Like, but why? Why? I'm like, because you don't need it. You just need to do your, your lifting or your circus or your gymnastics or whatever it might be. Get in there, feel it out. If it doesn't feel cool, adjust it a little bit. That feels great, fantastic, keep going. Simple solutions. That, that's the best thing you can do is just make it really simple. And then they're actually spending less time physically stressed. You know, you, you're, the accumulated work is less and thus they're probably less likely to experience some sort of pain or injury because they've got more energy to spend on recovery right they're just they're not killing themselves for 45 minutes and they're sweating their balls (laughs) thank you for saying all of that (laughs) Uh, i i mean i mean even even though that's that's kind of the perspective that i have as as a coach and a little bit as a circus educator you know if i think i still 
sometimes put more into a warm-up than I should. Confession, guilty, guilty confession. And part of that is I think that I almost feel like I have to. Otherwise, people will look at me and be like, well, this guy doesn't know what he's doing because he's not giving me 30 different activation drills in my warm-up. And so I'm going to get hurt because I didn't warm up my infraspinatus, my supraspinatus, my teres minor, my teres major, my subscap, uh, my serratus anterior, posterior, and my lats. And because I didn't warm all of that up before I got in the air, I'm my shoulder's going to fall out. <laughs> So, so I'm guilty of that. That being said, I think even, even what you said of kind of, all right, you, you've got this part, this thing in your warm up, and it's, it's helped you get past this pain or, or feel more comfortable in this movement. Once it's done that, get rid of it. You don't need to do that. As an individual, we should be looking at the warm-ups that we're doing or the warm-ups that we are being uh, assigned to do by coaches and programs and whatnot and almost taking like an executioner's blade to different warm-up items as they no longer have relevance. 100%. So it's quite funny. Uh, I'll have people say to me, oh, yeah, so you take, I see you don't do any activation drills before you lift. And I'm like, yeah, do you experience pain? Yeah, do you think you wouldn't get pain if you did i'm like it doesn't matter i've done it i did it for years it was pointless there's always this idea that because i have this belief it's like oh yeah but you don't know biomechanics you don't know each- i spent most of my fucking time studying and i still do because i love it it's really interesting right it's really cool to find really efficient movement that's fantastic love it but it's not why we experience pain or why we get injured right so and then i'll go oh, but you're an outlier then you're just an outlier. You're like a one percenter. I'm like, mate, I tell you, I'm not a one percenter. There is nothing special about me. I'm like every other human here. I'm not some top one percent powerlifter, weightlifter, strongman, martial artist, sprinter. I'm not top one percent. I might be That's some hardcore mental gymnastics there. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, it's just I'm not. I'm not a top one percenter. I've just I just put in good work. I just I want to be good. I want I want to apply myself, and thus I tend to get some great results. Fantastic, but. That doesn't make me special, right? That, that doesn't mean that I'm unique or anything. So I, I got a really good example of this. I had a CrossFitter recently come to me and we discussed these ideas and he was warming up for about like 40 minutes doing Bulgarian split squats and all this stuff. I'm like, mate, you do that in training anyway. Why are you doing it now? You're just wearing yourself out to lift some heavy stuff. Yeah, but I'm, I'm getting my, my body ready. I'm priming. I'm priming tissue. I'm like, what does that mean? Or activating it. What does activating it mean? making sure it's turned on. I said, do you think when it's really heavy that your tissue doesn't turn on? Well, no, it does. I'm like, so why are you doing it? It's If it didn't turn on, you, you would fuck, you would die. You'd fall over. You wouldn't be standing. Uh, you know what's really funny? When people talk about rotator cuff warms, the best exercise they've found to maximally, maximally recruit all rotator cuff muscles is a lateral raise. You just get a dumbbell and you bring it out to your side maximal recruitment of all four rotator cuffs. If you want to warm your rotator cuffs, I'll fucking do that. They just piss around in all these weird positions. It makes no sense if you want to warm it up. Or what you do is you don't, and you just train that at the end. It's an accessory, right? So, oh, man, i got some shoulder pain. Fantastic. I want you to do some lateral raises. Oh, cool. Five kilos. Ah, oh, it's a bit sore. What about four? That's kind of easy. All right, four, and make it and lower it really slowly. Is that hard? Yeah, that's really hard now. Okay. Do that two, three times a week for the next four weeks. Come back to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it got better after like the first week. Oh, cool. Fantastic. Great. You can keep doing that if you want. I don't mind because it's a great exercise. I could give you strong shoulders. Like, it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to have these convoluted warm ups that are just chaos and mayhem that make no sense. It's like, it's unordered chaos. I call myself ordered chaos 
that's unordered chaos, right? I'm like, let's rip it all down, blow it up, start again. Everyone's like, whoa, we can't do that. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing it right now. They're like, let's just chuck up, let's chuck shit at the wall and something will stick. That's that's that model of going, let's just give you a bunch of shit and if it works, okay. I'm like, mm. no, no. He, here's the science, let's apply it, fantastic, go, good. Do you feel better? No, okay, this might be more complicated, right? There's not like a hope, wish and hope for the best. There is experimental play and see what feels good, but it's not It's not just like, oh, yeah, it's... The, the biomechanical or biomedical model sounds fancy and complicated, but it's actually really fucking simple. It, it, it is. It's not. It's really not fancy. It makes something that sounds really complicated kind of sound simple, but it's actually more complicated. What the fuck? I keep, keep getting so tangled up in my mind about this. Uh, it's just it just doesn't apply it doesn't it's we, we, we need to start to shift away you know we've, we've gone so far to that physiotherapists and chiropractors did and what we need to do and this is what we're sort of doing in EP is, is coming back back to the center back to the biopsychosocial side and it doesn't mean just there sit there and go oh it's just psychosocial factors that are killing you not the biomedical or biomechanical they still play a role it's just not the be all end all. It's just something. It's thirty three percent of a of a of a big picture, and then you got another thirty three percent over the psycho with the you know psychological and the sociological. Another thirty three percent. There we go. It's just spread across all of them. Just yeah, yeah. I, anyway, getting fired up again. For sure, and and even in the thirty three percent, that is the kind of biological element of the biopsychosocial model. Probably. I don't know of any studies that have done this, but probably if you have a program that you're working on that is appropriate to your level, that targets all of the muscles that you want to be working in in a progressive fashion, that doesn't overload you, that allows you proper time to recover, and you're eating well, that's almost going to do more for you than doing a really complex throw shit at the wall warm up with lots of kind of prehab exercises. And, you know, it, it's human nature to, to maybe want to do more than we're ready for. I think a lot of times we are impatient with our expectations around progress and skill acquisition. And if we were a little more patient, uh, that would maybe have more uh, of an impact on injury reduction than, than, you know, doing 30 different band exercises. Um, <laughs> but that's i i don't know of any studies that have looked at that so don't quote me so this well look i don't think there is and and there, there was some there was uh, tim gabbett was going around being like the 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 work to injury ratio there's a certain amount of work in which people would just break down and get injured mm-hmm. now we found it wasn't true it was actually it was inaccurate but it was a model that some people working on for a bit but i will always say this load management is king it always is it is number one. The biggest benefit that you can do is just load management. Okay. Now I've done gymnastics training. I did it for about a year. Really loved it. You know what I really hated about it though is that I never felt I was ever progressing. Mm. I don't see an extra kilo on the bar. I don't. I still don't have the skill. I can do everything else better, but I still don't have this fucking skill. Like I can't. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating. And it's like you got 1% better, but you don't get to see that. And that can be really challenging. And I, I think that's probably the same thing in circus as well. Absolutely, yeah. I just, I, let me push into it. I want to do the skill, let me try it. And then we overextend ourselves. 
And as athletes, the more you do, the more we might say there are, there are biological stresses here by training really hard. You're not recovered. Okay, I will agree with that. But it's still, once again, I'm not recovering well. My sleep's gone to shit. And then because I'm training harder, I'm giving up time in my other meaningful relationships. I'm sacrificing time with my partner or my friends or whatever it might be. And those are psychological stresses uh, that play a big role. But load management 100% is always king. Um, And that will vary week to week as well. Uh, And I think this is a really hard thing in circus and gymnastics is how do we grade that? We, Mm -hmm. that's really complicated. Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, load management is king. Every time it's the best way to manage injury and reduce chances of injury as well. Uh, I I think people sometimes get told by a coach to, to do a certain type of workout and they're, you know, do three times a week without really giving room or permission for adjusting or modulating that as a, they get stronger and B, they might have a shit week, shit day, shit night, whatever. Um, how do you go about that in circus? So in, in powerlifting, not so much in weightlifting, because it's a high skill level thing, but in powerlifting, a very low skill sport. It is the lowest skill strength sport on the planet. Powerlifting is fucking so basic. Anyone can do it. People who are who are not athletic on the lowest rung of athleticism can do powerlifting. It's ridiculous. It's just time. If you spend time at it, you'll get good at it. Mm-hmm. So we use RPE, and you can use it in lots of different ways. But Rate of perceived exertion. Yes, rate of perceived exertion. Now, it, people will say, oh, it's got to do with um, how many reps you have left in the tank out of 10. So if it's a 7 RPE, you've got three, 3 reps left in the tank. Now... I, I inter no well, I interchangeably or do I make it a bigger picture? I'm a fuck. I, let's be honest. I make it way more complicated. So I use RPE not just as how many reps there are left in the tank, but also how stressful does it feel, particularly for clients that are in pain. How stressful does this feel to you right now? Like a fucking eight. How many reps do you feel like you have left in the tank? Ten. But I'm stressed out of my fucking mind. My eyeballs are about to explode. Okay, we need to drop what it is, right? So. That how how stress how stressfully the, the the exercise is can play a role in how we feel how, how hard it is and what if the benefits were it's not about being stronger it's not about being better but you got a little bit more comfortable with the exercise you're less scared less terrified that kind of thing so you know that that reassuring I know I can do this and I'm resilient I've got this right that mm-hmm. having that that self-efficacy that belief in yourself that you can do this what if that is part of rp as well right um that's what i think is really important yeah i i think it is i'm working with a friend of mine we're kind of trying to put together this free resource for or like sliding scale resource for people to get from zero to 12 weeks of aerial fitness just because there isn't really a lot like that out there and it can be inaccessible feeling uh and cost wise inaccessible for a lot of folks but something that when maybe even I started thinking about this after like seeing some of what you were putting out, but I there in my head there are three three different RPE scales. There's the like cardiovascular. I'm running a marathon RPE. There's the how many reps left in reserve RPE of of kind of the weightlifting, powerlifting, resistance training element, and then there's a like psychocognitive RPE, which is that fear RPE, or 
potentially how complex a skill is, so how much attention and mental focus it takes. And I think they they all, you know, have an interchange not interchangeable, um, an interactive effect. But but yeah, I mean, especially in circus, there are skills that have almost like a, a taboo fear built around them and have horrible names like dislocate or arm breaker that that lead no i'm not, <laughs> even, I'm not even kidding yeah, it's great I, I don't call it that i call it like a side planche or uh that's that's my preferred or back flags reverse meat hook i also call it sometimes which isn't a great <laughs> term i know i know i should work it's, on that it's good but but there there are skills that have these names that evoke kind of a higher level of fear and arousal that just need time to be comfortable in, whether it's in a lower intensity version or um, with a spotter or, or something where it's it's hard, like strength-wise, uh, side planche is not easy, but it's not as hard as people think it is once they overcome that psychological element. So yeah, I, I'm really on board with that idea that you just proposed. So when we, when we have high skill level activities, uh, this this is something that's very evident in gymnastics and weightlifting, like Olympic weightlifting, very high skill level. Reps in reserve of how many reps you have left doesn't really work anymore. Basic skills like chin-ups and stuff, yes, but high skill level activities don't. Oh, that rep looked perfect. Mate, I reckon you could do 10 more. That's how perfect it looked. They try to do it. No, I can't. It doesn't really work like that. So we've kind of got to work off like, and this is why I like, and this ties into warm-ups as well, right? you do your warm-up, you're going through and you break down the movement through different sections and you're like, oh, I kind of feel really weak here at the moment in this one section. You might at the end of the session do accessory work with that. You might not be able to do the full skill today because you're tired or you're sore, like you've got some serious doms from your previous workout or whatever it might be. It's just an off day. Uh, it's like 80% of our workouts are amazing. 10% are, oh no, 80% of our workouts are just getting it done. 10% are amazing and 10% are dog shit, Right? We have those ten percent of dog shit. Is like just getting shit done. Like we need to we need to think about what can I do today that's going to be okay. The eighty percent of like it's alright is just usual routines, bits and pieces. The amazing ten percent is I can do the skill multiple times. I'm a fucking I'm a weapon, right? <laughs> and and so when we look at those really dog shit days, you know that's why we go through and we warm up and we break the movement down rather than foam rolling and doing all this rubbish. We break down the movement to different sections as we warm up. We, we find that I'm really stuck in this part of the skill today and even my warm-up, I can't really break it down and, and make it feel better. So I might, at the end of my session, add some accessory work in that might build that up today. You know, maybe it is a weak point for me and that's why it's showing when I'm not feeling great at the moment. I, I can work on that to be better at it. Maybe that's it's like a, you know, you might think something like a really simple one, a muscle-up on the rings, you know what I mean? Or like on the silks or something as you get up, you might go down, like transition is really hard. Such a common area for people. Just, it's hard. It it's, requires a lot of strength. And if that's where your weak point is, you're like, well, at the end of the session, I might just eccentrically, so I might just lower myself through that movement and then jump back up, lower myself through. I might do, you know, five sets of five of that. And that itself, you're like, oh, I feel way better and I'm so excited to come in tomorrow to try it rather than just beating yourself to death again. That is load management, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and that applies to warm-ups, load management, everything, uh, developing better as an athlete. Um, and, and RPE is really something hard to, to work on. So I would say that within circus, RPE is going to be like how, how stressful did that feel? I think that plays a bigger role in high skill sports. How stressful did it feel? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then you'll, you'll break it down into basic skills like, oh, I need to develop some strength in my dips or my chin-ups or, or whatever it might be, my push-ups for, for you know, my, like my general strength and conditioning. We might use how many reps you have left in the tank and then, um, you know, bits and pieces like that. I think that's... Uh, and then you might go, if, it, if it's a routine that you're doing, which requires a lot more fitness, you know, that conditioning, it's like, how did that... We just... They all work together and we can interchangeably use them or just put it all together at the same time. It doesn't really matter. Um, you interpret that information and if it's rarely as athletes do we ever need to go over a seven whether that be stress reps and like how many reps you have left or like the cardiovascular part we never do above that is hard to adapt to we overextend ourselves if we do a lot of it we can't actually recover Um, and that usually comes down to frequency and volume of how much of training we're actually doing yes to all of that um, there are a lot, lot of things I was like, I, which way I respond to, which in order, oh, shit, crap, uh, I'm going to forget that. No. Um, okay, I'm going to work my way backwards. So you're kind of saying, well, RPE, we shouldn't really go over seven as athletes in terms of, you know, being able to recover for the next workout or time or doing that thing. I guess I would like to provide a, a potential counterpoint, which is I think we can go towards a nine for certain s- strength skills if we're not training them as frequently. Um, and this goes back to load management a little bit, but I think that in circus and aerial, sometimes people are like, all right, I'm training four to five times a week uh, upper body things. And I'm like, well, you you can do that. And you're going to have, you know, days where you're just going to, you know, work the pathway, work the negative, like you said, for the muscle ups, because they're not going to be recovered. You're maybe going to have doms. You're maybe not going to be sleeping as well, whatever. Or, so you'll be working on a lower RPE, or you can maybe just do two upper body days where you're closer to that like nine, maybe not at failure, but closer to failure. And then you're resting for a longer period. And I guess this is, this is my own personal bias for sure. I don't want to strength train or really train every day just because I have a lot of shit. I like to do that. Isn't training i mean don't don't get me wrong don't get me wrong i like circus i think it's fun and i want to learn how to do every possible skill of certain types because they're movement puzzles and that you know that gets me going um uh for warm-ups that turns me on the the brain muscle um but that said i also you know like to do other things i like to make food i like to try to give back to the community and if i'm training these things four or five days a week i don't have as much time for that or school, I'm about to go to school. So it's like, all right, well, can I work at a higher RPE at a lower frequency and be more strategic about what I'm working on each day? Is is that okay? So yes, and it does come down to volume and frequency. So if we're going heavy all the time, it's, it's not going to work out. And even leading into a competition or a, 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 let's say if you know, you're, you're bigger to circus and you actually do performances and stuff, you might find that you do a, a bit of higher intensity more more frequently leading up to it because you really n- need to nail it. Mm-hmm. And then as you come back in, you start to taper off about two weeks out and, and you start to really recover all that work you've done and you, you start to keep things really simple. Now, I know the Chinese weightlifting team, this is crazy. All right, this is the Chinese weightlifting. This is a high-level sport. These are also mega-doped athletes as well. They're like neck-level they go against what every other weightlifting team does. Leading to competition, they become less specific with their movements and they max out like their squats, their deadlifts. They max out on a regular basis They and they don't do a lot of clean and jerks or snatches. They actually, they become less specific. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck thought that was a great idea? Well, they're some of the best Olympic weightlifters in the world, so I guess it works. 
there's not one method. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what I'm getting at. There's not this one amazing method that is injury preventive and perfect for everyone. No, everyone's a fucking individual and we need to adapt it accordingly. But we can come down to some certain some certain ground rules here. Maxi out every day is going to fuck you up. Yeah. Unless you're a well-doped athlete that has... You've been training since you were like seven. There's, there's a point at which you just can't adapt. And it's not that you're damaging your body. Your body will tell you to stop with pain before you actually damage tissue. It will stop. Um, so... Keeping that in mind, the frequency and volume matters if we're doing intent, like a lot of intense work. You know, if we if we keep going, it'll run you down. Mm-hmm. However, we can say that RPE helps manage that. So if you're like, oh man, I did like a nine on Monday and I come in, I've got to do a nine on, on Wednesday and I would do a nine on Friday. Whatever that nine was, it, it'll be less anyway. But the, pr- the problem is people are fucking complicated and they're not going to change it. They're going to be like, I did that on Monday. I'm going to do it today. I'm going to do it on Friday. The downfalls of RPE. I do the same dumb shit and I know I'm not doing the right thing and I still do it. So this is uh, the downfalls of being a human. The only guarantee, the only guarantee you have is that the individual in front of you is a fucking individual and they are chaotic and I, I, I'm, I'm not a frivolous spender. At all. This is this is how, how chaotic yeah. it is. I'm not a frivolous spender, but I've suddenly become obsessed with this car, and I want to buy it. And it's crazy, but I know I shouldn't, but I still want it. I, I can't tell you. Same thing within sport, right? I know that this is well above, but I'm going to go a little bit higher because I want to be better, so I know I'm going to work hard. But no one else will yeah, know. Yeah, no one else is going to know because only I know, but my coach fucking knows. And he's like, dude, what the fuck? And has to pull me in. And this is why I have a coach, because I can't trust myself. I can't program myself, because I will beat myself into the ground. Because I'm like, stuff it, I've got to go harder. More. Give me more. I'm a pusher. Give it. it I mean, it definitely... There, there are people on either end of the spectrum. There are people who need a coach to pull them back and tell them to chill. You don't actually go that hard. You're going to overtrain that close to failure at failure. You're not actually going to be making more gains. Or you're going to need to have that coach who's going to be like, hey, uh, you could try a little more. Just, like, push it a little bit. I'm, I'm on board. Programming for yourself is hard. I absolutely take joy in when I get to trade programming with someone else just because I'm like, oh, they're telling me what to do now. And But yes, I agree. Uh, uh, another coach will make you work on something that you're shit at. And pull you in. Yeah, 100%. In, in terms of the setting reasonable expectations and being like, all right, I have a job, uh, my own business, I have a partner, and um, I also train, and I would like to achieve this goal, I would rather achieve something slowly without experiencing injuries from overtraining or setbacks than achieve something quickly with a period of time where I was injured. As someone who, in my, in my youth, um, I was less... <laughs> less uh injury averse let me tell you it's not fun and i th- it's really easy and and for a lot of athletes in circus and aerial probably in other sports for your identity to get wrapped up in the sport you're doing and if you are injured and maybe have a thought like oh i'll never be able to perform again or oh i'll never be able to do xyz skill again or something like that sucks and it's not fun and that i mean that mental health element uh is super important to especially as you get older and especially you know during a pandemic when mental health is already an issue um super important to take that into account so yeah 
So we, we as humans tend to validate ourselves by doing things. And, and for those who do sports, running, lifting, circus, gymnastics, whatever it might be, we sort of validate who we are. And I have a friend who's coming up to doing a 200-kilometer run in 24 hours. So this is what he's planning. And he's doing it for charity. Now, despite him doing it for charity, he goes, I'm moving away from running. And I said, oh, you know, what's going on? And he goes, I'm just starting to validate who I am with my running and I'm identifying with it and I need to move away from that so I can come back to enjoy it for what it is. Training Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be punishment. It can be fun if we stop validating ourselves and identifying with it. So he goes, after the run for about two weeks, I know I'm going to be really depressed. Like I'm going to be really sad. I'm just going to hurt and I'm just going to have to move around. And he goes, I just need to find the love to just run again. Now he's been, he's done a 300 kilo deadlift as well. So he's done powerlifting. He's currently learning a lot of future mass a lot of handstand stuff, a lot of arm balancing things and bits and pieces as well. And he goes, I kind of just want to do the exact opposite to running, which is bodybuilding because I just mm-hmm. need to remove myself from, it. I need to stop validating who I am with this. Uh, and I think as a coach, your job is to make sure that person doesn't identify with that sport and validate themselves with it. Right. Because that's a that's a psychological stressor. New or current findings around pain, nociception or just science that you think the circus world would benefit from knowing or just five little pieces of advice that you think other coaches and athletes in the bodyweight gymnastics circus world could use in a practical sense. So I think I think we touched on some really good stuff like what what's what's practical, like what's a practical warm up doing the movement, break it down. I think that's really practical. That's good application. I think from, and I, I see it in the in the strength world as well for strength athletes, which is this really biomedical, biomechanical, kinesiophobic model. And I think understanding and going, hey man, look, the research doesn't support it. Movement is highly variable, like really variable. And every time we do something, it will be different despite what we might think. What we see someone doing is actually not what's happening either in their body. We can't see what tissues are moving and what's being loaded, but we can guarantee if it's really hard, probably everything mm. is. And this comes down to to you know, lumbar flexion seems to be a common fear in circus as well from some of the stuff I was seeing. Don't flex your spine, you're going to snap it. And it's like, mate, yeah. if, we, if we reflect on this and we go, what was the point of exercising for our tissues to get stronger, for them to adapt so we can do this movement? We don't have to do that in one place. It applies to everything. So my, my suggestion would be the overwhelming evidence is, is suggesting that posture doesn't matter, technique doesn't matter. But we can adjust techniques towards ones that might be less painful right now to one that is. That being more efficient doesn't necessarily mean we're not going to be in pain or we're not going to get injured. That load management is king, Right? Uh, and load management in life like it's not just the training it's life load management right everything is adaptive what we might think as being really efficient sometimes isn't lumbar flexion's bad but it's actually really good for powerlifting for for the squat and the deadlift to two two out of three movements it's really important but for the other one the third one bench press extension is really important so you need adaptive postures it's okay to go either spectrum either end right it doesn't matter it's okay the big thing is to make sure that we feel prepared, that we feel comfortable, that we feel tolerant. And even when we do, sometimes we still get pain and not to be fearful of that pain. 
to make sure that we're communicating this with our coaches. Yeah, things are really sore, so I kind of moved around. I found some positions that aren't as painful right now, so I'm going to work on those. And the coach hopefully would be like, yes, what are those? Please tell me so I can help program them for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Communication is king, and that's something that I've really been instilling where I, where I work now in this powerlifting gym, and the guys communicate with their coach, and they don't need to see me as an allied health professional as much. Oh, we're going to change training around a little bit. It feels better now. Oh, my pain's gone away. What did you do? And the coach is like, I don't know. Ask Tate. He, he keeps telling me to do this stuff. I don't understand it. We just applied some inadvertent load management, right? Um, so, yeah, don't worry. Your joints degenerate anyway. That's unavoidable. Mm. Whether you move well or don't, don't worry about that too much. But we know that the more you move, the better because it adapts and gets stronger and more tolerant and is less likely to degenerate as much. Pain and injury, they are inevitable. They will happen at some point. And how we, our mindset around that is really important. You know, making sure that we're like, I'm not injuring myself. I'm not hurting myself for the most part, but I need to keep moving and doing something. You know what I mean? Whatever that might be. That may means taking a week off training and circus and lifting some weights, so be it. For me, if that means taking a week off lifting and doing some circus, then so be it. It's okay, right? There's nothing wrong there. I, I am getting better, but I just need to find what feels good right now. Um, so yeah, we want to shift away from that kinesophobic model and more to a movement optimist model because circus really enforces, realistically, a more optimistic thought process on movement because it's so variable. You hop in positions that we wouldn't dare do with a barbell but you do it with your whole body weight. And you're telling me that, oh, but if you're off by a millimeter, you're gonna snap it? No, it doesn't work like that, mate. You're not that precise. Humans are that precise with their joints. Mm -hmm. Your tissues work no matter what. They don't need to be activated. They will work. Make sure that narratives that are being given to you are positive affirmations, not nocebic ones. Make sure they're, you know, hey man, we're doing this because we're trying to change how shit feels so you can pump it up, not, we're changing your technique because your technique's bad for you. They would be my that would be my advice because the evidence is what what reinforces that as well. Solid advice for one thing that I know audience members will have questions about is in the short term. I think most people are going to be on board. They're going to be like, all right, move in a way that's pain free and that works for your body on an individual level. But what about the overuse injury over time the longevity of the joint the tissue degeneration if i'm not lifting my legs with external rotation if i'm not bringing my arm overhead with external rotation you know i think there's a lot of fear of this long-term outcome and this injury that's going to happen in the future and and you know there's there's studies of, of gymnasts who if you look at like a sample of 30 elite level gymnasts in their 30s or 40s they all have some kind of tissue damage in their shoulder mostly none of them, if I remember correctly, had zero pain. The So the tissue damage was, and someone will maybe be like, well, they still have tissue damage, but is that tissue damage relevant? Anyway, so what's your take on that? What if that tissue damage, let's use inverted commas here, tissue damage is adaptive process for you to allow you to do those skills. So we know that in baseballers, all of them have labral tears. Those labral tears are there so they can actually externally rotate as far as they do to reach those velocities at which they pitch at. Their bones also twist and rotate differently to other humans because they've adapted to that. We know that anyone, any weightlifter has likely has labral tears because they have to get so overhead with their arms locked out and like, you know, 100 plus kilos, 200 kilos for some of them. Our tissues, if we start thinking that maybe it's not tissue degeneration, but tissue adaptation, 
bursitis, thickening of the bursal wall, is that's tissue adaptation. That's like a callus on your hand, but for the bursa. So it doesn't burst and it doesn't get inflamed. What if those labral tears are there so you could perform those crazy movements? They don't have to be pathological in nature because they're different. Um, that, that would be my advice. Most of us have rotator cuff tears. Most of us have degenerative processes happening at any point, but they don't have to be pathological in nature at all. They're just, they're just processes that happen that we, don't, we can't control. And this is the problem we have. In Australia, we've removed um, general practitioners from being able to recommend MRI. It's very costly, but also I saw the positives being like, all these people aren't going to get MRIs, that they're going to go, oh, look, I have a disbulge, I'm dead. Um, I'm, that's, my, that's my back pain but none of their symptoms are in line with it. I'm going to be honest. I got an MRI in Australia when I was there <laughs> because, it, because it was cheaper than in the United States and I didn't want to pay fucking absurd costs here as someone who had subpar health insurance. We know that a lot of orthopedic surgeries tend to be placebo anyway, a really fucking expensive one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the like arthroscopic knee surgery one is the best study that comes to mind. It's like, oh, we cut you open, did nothing, sewed you back up, and you feel better. So, yeah, a lot of the surgeries are placebo. Oh, you know what? I don't want to get surgery. It's expensive. Even in Australia, it's expensive. And it's like, I just don't want to do that. You know what I mean? And so they're forced to find other means that are more conservative, that are more cost-effective. Um, but we know that majority of the time, tissue damage doesn't mean or tissue adaptation or tissue change instead of why don't we instead of calling it tissue damage or degenerate why don't we just tissue change why, do, why does it always have to be negative or positive why can't it just be change it doesn't have to have anything it could just be completely neutral what if tissue change is just a product of what we do and that's okay I I will have multiple disc bulges throughout my life I probably have one right now I probably have all sorts of rotator cuff tears that are very small and don't cause me pain. I have degeneration of my knees. So be it. That's just part of what life is. As humans, what, what was the average lifespan of, the, of a normal human back in the day before modern medicine? What, 40 years? Maybe 50? No, it wasn't very... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm already well past half my, my, my lifespan. I feel like I'm doing pretty good, right? We just need to have a little bit more perspective and understanding that you know we are animals like any other we live for a long time and tissue does not last it eventually starts to break down but that's not a bad thing it's just a thing and it doesn't inherently mean that you're going to be in pain or that you're going to lose the ability to do something sometimes it's performance enhancing yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the fucked up part that's the fucked part your your labor of tear it's uh, it's yeah, you know, it's um, you know, it's part of it. It's it's what allows you to perform really well. Keep it. There are, I think there are some cases, just just to provide an alternate perspective opinion, where there is tissue change. Someone who's been doing ballet, you know, since they were five or something, they've been in hecka external rotation for ages and ages and ages, and they are actually in pain. And, and maybe there is tissue change, but even even when the tissue change is associated in some way with being in pain or, or pathological issues, you're not 
necessarily going to reverse the tissue damage to relieve the pain. You're going to do other things, right? Is the pain that... will settle down before the tissue changes back to what it, what it was healed to. So was the tissue damage even relevant in the first place? I don't know. I don't have an answer. There are so many unknowns. Was the tissue... T- when, when that happens, I'm like, was the tissue even an issue? Probably not. That's my assumption. Someone might say otherwise. What if just giving them something different was all they needed? I'm always doing external rotation all the time. I'm overextending I'll just do that some movement. internal rotation. Yeah. yeah. What if it was that simple? Just give them some loaded internal... Give them something different. And that's all that it took for it to feel good. And they're like, what the fuck? Nothing's healed, but they feel better already. Tissue couldn't have healed in that time. It'll take months. There's, there's just not this... There's just not a simple answer to this. And, and that's what all the research says. And if you think that your opinion goes, nah, it is as simple as that, then you don't know what you're talking about. And that sounds really mean, but you just don't. You clearly don't realize how much evidence out there is saying we know fucking nothing. It is so unclear. We can't even really define when tissue damage is a cause. Maybe a broken leg, yes. Let's be reasonable here. You got hit by a car, your leg's broken. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that that's probably pathological. I'm not going to be silly. But that little rotator cuff tear you have, probably not pathological. That bit of bursitis... It's not even much swelling. It's about the same amount of swelling you'd see if we finished training and went and got a scan. You know? That little... That tendinopathy or tendonitis, is it really or is it just a load intolerance? Have I just overextended my body? It's just saying, bro, I just need to... Need, you need to rest me now. Like, give me a break. Yeah. I just... I just don't, I just don't know. I, I, there, there are no answers. That's, that's... The only answer is there are no full exact answers, but we can look out for things that might indicate that the tissue might have more to do with it than not. But it's very rare that that is the case. I, I'll, I, from my own experiences, which is complete anecdotal evidence, which makes means it's worthless. That's what I will say. <laughs> I've got a friend doing physio. He was an exercise physiologist like myself. Felt like he had not enough skills. Went to do physiotherapist or uh, physiotherapy, and uh, he is. Uh, he started to learn a lot more and realize that, oh man, like what's happening isn't happening. He started to shift over to this biopsychosocial one and started to learn more about it. He goes, I don't know if I want to do this degree, but fuck it. I've, they've accepted me. I might as well do it. Gets in there. He's like, all they teach is a biomedical model. And every time he goes, hey man, they'll do a case study. This woman lost her job, is exercising less, doing meaningful activities less, and then got some pain. And he's like, those, those psychosocial factors are playing way more of a role than her lack of external rotation yeah yeah yeah, exactly like those psychosocial factors are playing a bigger role than her lack of external rotation what if she doesn't have any fucking more anyway because of anatomy you can't prove that like you didn't and and he and and so like he'll he'll say that in class like oh no 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 no. we're just focusing on the on that part i understand that that's all we have control over like i i get it that's all we can control and I, I'm, I'm doing a post at the moment, which is the four things I think we as allied health have control over. Load management, exercise selection, narratives, and technique. 
but technique the least amount we have control over because people will go where they fucking want to go. That's the body does what it wants to do, finds the least path of resistance, right? And and trying to apply what you perceive as the right technique on someone else where it might not be the right technique for them might end up poorly also. Exactly. So we see it a lot in powerlifting, a hip dominant squatter versus a knee dominant squatter. Whoop. What are you? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, exactly. It's, and I'm sure the exact same is in within circus, right? What if you can't do a certain skill a certain way and you need to deviate a little bit into a range that might seem dangerous, but it's actually really efficient for you? How the hell do you overcome that? Well, with good, positive, movement, optimistic approach, right? Like, it's not dangerous. It's not bad. Maybe it'll feel better, and that's okay. I actively tell people to, to cave their knees in when they squat on a regular basis. Do it. They're like, that got easier and my knees aren't sore. Cool. Do that for the next two weeks. And every coach is like, that's dangerous. I'm like, why? It's inefficient. Why? The research is actually saying otherwise. They're a knee-dominant squatter. They're quite narrow. And right now, everything else hurts. That's the only thing that doesn't. Keep them training. That will help. There's nothing else I can do here other than... Like, our job as Allied Health is, is to make sure nothing nasty is going on. We're kind of like a GP in the sense for musculoskeletal pain. We make sure we look for red flags, make sure nothing nasty is going on. And if there is, it's out of our fucking scope anyway. Cancer or, like, a fully ruptured ligament, that's... We don't deal with that. That's... You send it away. You have... Your job is done here. That's it. And if it's pain, if it's just good old-fashioned classic pain... That's where we're like, well, what can I influence here? I need to keep them moving. I need to develop self-efficacy and independence. Uh, shit. Well, what can I influence? What I'm telling them? Because I can't influence outside stuff. I might have to refer them to a psychologist. Once again, out of our scope of practice. Mm-hmm. They have a job where they're on the lower socioeconomic scale. They don't earn a lot of money for whatever reason. I can't just start throwing them money or not charge them because I won't pay my own fucking bills. It's very complicated, but the four things you can control, fantastic, get good good skills to check for red flags, uh, be really good at communicating and being likable. There you go. That's like the best parts to be a good allied health. Empathetic as fuck. Empathetic as fuck is really important. It hurts, though. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> I, I've got to actually do some programming for some of my students but this has been super fun i've had a blast i really appreciate you taking the time to hop on circsi and uh you've got a podcast of your own into the red zone yes into the red zone you can find it on uh itunes and spotify uh i do it with the co-host ellen she's a cool chick we talk all things sort of very much health focused um that's sort of where we tend to pump it up it's uh it's a lot of fun cool check tate's podcast out well tate and ellen's podcast out into the Renzo, and you can follow tate on instagram at total body benefit he posts informative and sometimes sassy things you'll you'll find out if you check it out <laughs> sassy <laughs> sassy <laughs> thanks mate thanks for having me on i had a really good time